Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about who's in charge here. And since I intend to use a lot of direct address toward Christians in this episode, I'll add the ironic but seriously intended salutation, O ye of little faith. So what does that mean to say, hey, who's in charge here, O ye of little faith? Well, I'm coming down to the point of being ready to speak about the larger, you know, general issue of the mixture of politics with religion, the insinuation of religious people and religious ideas into the political realm. Originally, I thought I might save this for Election Day later on this year, but a couple of things have happened that have changed my mind. First, just generally, I realized that was probably too late. It doesn't do much good to speak to the issue of the appropriate or inappropriate mixture of religion and politics when you're doing it on the day that the, uh, the entire matter has been decided, at least from a U.S. presidential election perspective. So the first Tuesday in November would not have been the right time. As it is right now, I'm making this recording just before Super Tuesday in the primary season uh, in late February, early March. This is either just in time for people planning to participate in the Republican primaries, or it's early, probably too early, for people who are more interested in just the general election because they would prefer to support an independent candidate or the sitting Democratic president in Obama. But the other thing that occurred to me is when you look at the current crop of 2012 wannabes, nominees for the Republican Party and also some of the independent candidates, it occurs to me that this is right on target. And what I found that I want to share today is actually um, an article written in 2008, and it's an article written by a Christian for a Christian audience. I would also consider myself to be somebody who's a Christian speaking to a Christian audience, but I think I want to do so in a way that will you know, maybe appeal to a much broader audience than just that. So this isn't an in-house conversation from my perspective, but I would like all of us to consider, in fact, as I review some of the points made in this article a few years ago is whether or not the current crop of candidates, both the ones who are still vying for the Republican nomination in 2012, and also some of the ones who've recently dropped out of the race, how do they fare against this kind of advice given by Christians to Christians about politics and um, how to play the political game, along with key biblical quotes? I intend to share both the Bible verses that the author has cited and a big piece of the author's article. This was written by somebody named Andrew Jackson, not the president from, you know, centuries ago, but a person who wrote an article that was uh, published in the Christian Research Journal in the volume 31, number four, 2008, in a viewpoint column. And it was advising Christians on how to engage in politics without losing your soul. That's actually the title of the reprint that I received via the Internet. We in the United States are in a heated presidential election. When the political temperature rises, so does name-calling, character assassination, and confrontation. Even committed Christ followers, unfortunately, get caught up in the partisan political whirlwind of the moment and join in the fight. We as Christians should seriously engage in the ongoing debate in the political public square. But in doing so, 
we must demonstrate a citizenship seasoned by God's wisdom and love. The title of this article is based on Jesus' question in Mark chapter 8, verse 36. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Over the years, I have watched many Christians zealously become active in partisan politics and actually, quote, lose their souls. That is, they lose their public, uniquely Christian witness, act contrary to the fruit of the Holy Spirit, and become divisive agents within the church. Here are ten biblical guidelines to assist Christians to engage in the upcoming presidential election without losing their souls. Before I get into his list, let me remind you, this is from 2008. We could just as easily look to 2012, and frankly the years in between, and read this list from the perspective of whether or not the uh, Christians who are active in politics today, who would presume to be the spokesperson, if not for the country, at least for their political party, how do they measure up to these guidelines, both biblically and from the author? Here's what Jackson had to say. Number one, don't equate the biblical kingdom of God with any human political party or nation. We must maintain the distinctiveness between God's kingdom and the kingdoms of the world. We must never fuse the two. John chapter 18, verse 36 Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Matthew 6, verses 31 to 33. Do not worry then, saying, What shall we eat, and what shall we drink, or what shall we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Number two, don't elevate a politician to messianic status. People often falsely think that a politician can single-handedly produce supernatural social results. We have one Lord, and we must resist any temptation to exalt politicians to unrealistic heights. Matthew 7, verses 15 and 16. Beware of the false prophets, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? 1 Peter 3, verses 14 and 15. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to anyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Number three, don't just vote, but pray for the leaders of all political parties. Christians can be tempted to bless the politician of their choice and curse her or his opponent. But remember, we must pray even for our enemies. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings, be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 47. You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, 
so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Number four. Do not forget that your ultimate security is in the unshakable kingdom of God. Many Christians often elevate the outcome of political elections to an apocalyptic status. If a particular presidential candidate does not win, we begin to think or act as if the world will end. In so doing, however, we express an unbelief in the active sovereignty of God over human affairs. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 22 to 29. But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and the myriads of angels, to the general assembly, and the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. And his voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also heaven. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken, as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude, by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Number five, don't bring the polarization of partisan politics into the family of God. Every Christian has freedom of conscience before God, and we must guard against allowing political perspectives to divide the church. Romans 16, verse 17. Now I urge you, brethren, keep an eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you have learned, and turn away from them. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 to 13. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, or I of Apollos, or I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Number six, don't demonize anyone. Every person has been created in the image of God, and Christians must not demonize or dehumanize other people, whether we agree with them politically or not. Colossians chapter 3, verses 8 to 11. But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices, and have put on a new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek 
and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and freeman, but Christ is all and in all. James chapter 4, verse 12. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But who are you who judge your neighbor? Number seven, don't engage in angry, hostile confrontation. Present your political convictions through civil debate and rational dialogue instead. Confrontational arguments demonstrate an ugly pride that demeans Jesus Christ. James chapter 1, verses 19 to 20. This you know, my beloved brethren, but I must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 14. Remind them of these things, and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. Number eight, do not become so intertwined with one political party that you forfeit your independence. When you do, you lose your right to be heard and to speak and clarify biblical truth to all politicians and all political parties. First Timothy chapter three, verses 14 and 15. I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living, the pillar and support of the truth. Romans chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Number nine, don't allow yourself to support attempts to divide races, male and female, rich and poor, or young and old. Partisan politics often divides society into voting blocks and separates society instead of uniting it. Christians should function as peacemakers and reconcilers in the public square and should resist every temptation to join in the game of dividing people for political gain. Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 to 19. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed us to the word of reconciliation. Number 10. Don't simply curse the darkness, but constructively engage it. The cultural and missional mandate of kingdom Christians is not to curse the darkness in our world, but to act as illuminating light and preserving salt. We must share the light of God's truth and work to maintain the common welfare of our nation by overcoming evil through doing good. Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and be trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. 
A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. I am aware, Jackson says, that the outcome of the 2008 presidential election could have significant and even negative consequences for people's lives. But we don't need to worry. In the larger scheme of history, no matter who becomes our next president, God is still king and he is in control. Quickly, I want to repeat the key principles that Jackson outlined in his article. Don't equate the biblical kingdom of God with any human political party or nation. Don't elevate a politician to messianic status. Don't just vote, but pray for the leaders of all political parties. Don't forget that your ultimate security is in the unshakable kingdom of God. Don't bring the polarization of partisan politics into the family of God. Don't demonize anyone. Don't engage in angry, hostile confrontation. Don't become so intertwined with one political party that you forfeit your independence. Don't allow yourself to support attempts to divide races, male and female, rich and poor, or young and old. And don't simply curse the darkness, but constructively engage it. So what was my question when I started this off, saying, hey, O ye of little faith, whether people who aren't part of Christianity— Um, and therefore have a different faith, or perhaps truly little faith in the truest sense of the word, or those people who presume to be part of the church, but instead are what I describe as politically active Christians who are more, more deeply committed to the political process than they are to anything that Jesus said or anything that was written in the Bible. How well are these folks doing? How, how good are our political candidates doing in living up to the standard recommended by the Christian Research Journal in 2008? Now, it's a fair question to wonder whether this publication would have the same opinion today. I believe they intend to. I received this email just a few weeks ago. So it seems that an effort was being made to restate its point of view and that its point of view is consistent with what it was in 2008. But I'll tell you what I'm missing What I'm missing is a well-intentioned, carefully worded, but nevertheless sharp denunciation of several of our key political candidates who are out there right now, because I think the evidence is overwhelmingly clear that the candidates who most loudly and proudly boast of their association with evangelical Christianity are failing this standard. It is easy for me, and my guess is easy for you too, to envision how one might describe a political candidate, particularly one of the Republican political candidates, as being someone who has definitely equated the biblical kingdom of God with a a human political party or with a nation. Every time you hear the words, America is a Christian nation, this principle is being violated. We've 
equivocated in the minds of some Christians um, the whole idea of what the Bible teaches as the kingdom of God with the United States as some sort of you know new chosen people, new chosen country, and worse that the Republican Party has somehow established itself, whether it likes it or not, as the party of God. Don't elevate a politician to messianic status. Well, we haven't seen this yet, but you can certainly see indications. Whichever candidate becomes the Republican nominee is going to be viewed as a savior figure against the antichrist figure of Obama, which, of course, violates one of the later principles about you know not demonizing your political enemies. Don't just vote, but pray for the leaders of all political parties. And I don't mean pray the way one of the Catholic archbishops was recently uh, identified as praying for the death of Obama. I don't mean praying in that sense. I mean praying for the welfare, for the wisdom, for the strengthening, for God's will to be done even through those people that maybe some people don't believe um, necessarily have his anointing. I'm not going to go through this line by line. I easily could. To very quickly point out, I mean, I think we've, we've got some people who've demonized the president because he's a political enemy. We've definitely heard more than our fair share of angry, hostile communication where people have become so entwined with one political party that voting a Republican straight ticket is being recommended in some churches or at least in some church parking lots as the only, um, the only Christian thing to do. This is not only an offensive concept in general, it directly rails against this article from the Christian Research Journal. And the funny thing is, the Christian Research Journal is probably saying this on one side of its mouth, and on the other side of its mouth, finding perhaps more subtle ways, not to violate its principles, but finding more subtle ways to smile and nod at people who do want to vote that straight Republican ticket. Because unfortunately, you can talk about whether or not it's appropriate to divide races or male and female or rich and poor or young and old all you want to. But you look at most of the legislative decisions that have come down in Republican-controlled state houses and legislatures in the last two or three months, and there's no better way to describe it than an attack against women's rights and you know a, a desire to separate old people from young people by hearkening back to, quote-unquote, good old days, and to separate men from women, at least in the area of rights or what should be equal rights. So there's plenty of going on here that at the very least might be described as cursing the darkness. And I'm not seeing the kind of changes that I would respect as compromise, as outreach, as shining a light. Uh, most, most of the time when a light gets shined in these kind of conversations from Christians who are actively engaged in the political process, it's got to feel more like a blinding light that might be used in a very aggressive interrogation technique by some sort of agency. You know, it's, it's not the kind of light that illuminates. It's the kind of light that attempts to blind. Now, the reason that I thought I might bring this up, one of the reasons in November, is that it was just a couple of years ago in November, what I would describe as midway through the Obama presidency, the first term, when I heard a message given that desperately needed to be presented. I can't think of very many times when I have heard a message spoken in a, you know, a church camp or in an informal gathering of interdenominational ministries. The speaker knew that he was addressing a group of people in November, around the time of the mid-year elections in the United States. The um, period of time between the four-year span of presidential elections where one-third of senators are up for re-election and entire uh, House of Representatives is up for re-election. 
he knew that he was speaking to an entire group of people that probably, with perhaps the exception of my wife and I, could be perceived to be anti-Obama. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. I don't think I can accurately be characterized as either pro or anti-Obama. Um, I've got a fair degree of indifference toward both of our main political parties. But I certainly would not describe myself as anti-Obama. But I was surrounded by a lot of people I think probably could be described that way. And um, he read from Isaiah chapter 6, pretty much uh, the first half of it in its entirety, which is a moment when Isaiah walks into the temple before he actually goes on his, uh, his mission of, of being a prophet, of speaking prophetic words. He encounters uh, a vision of angels and uh, the Lord himself sitting on sort of the throne inside the temple. And and Isaiah just comes unglued. I mean, he is convinced that he is probably going to be struck dead, that he is seeing things that no human should be able to survive seeing. And, uh, you know, he, he basically says, hey, you know what? I, I'm a sinful person. I, I'm a person of unclean mouth and unclean lips. And he has this, you know, again, vision or hallucination, depending on how you want to look at it where the angels take a burning coal from the fire with a pair of tongs and press it to his lips, which does not maim him or burn him in any way, but convicts him that he now can be used as a purified vessel to speak the truth. And a voice comes from the temple, loud, booming, angelic voice saying, whom shall I send? Who will tell the nations? And Isaiah, of course, uh, responds, I think, in the way you would (laughs) if you were face to face with that kind of situation. He says, here I am. Send me. I will go. Chris shared this story and with it asked the question, what's wrong with us if we as a group of believers, a group of Christians, seem to think that all is lost because a political election in 2008 took the country in a different direction? Have we forgotten who's in charge here? Have we forgotten who is actually on the real throne, the throne that matters? And it doesn't really matter if for four years or eight years, a Democrat's in the White House. My perspective is, of course, those four or eight years could not have possibly be as destructive as the previous eight years with a Republican in the White House. And that's pretty easy to document. I frankly question the objectiveness and the wisdom of people who see it in a different way. The stats kind of speak for themselves. Where were we in our relationship internationally with other countries before George W. Bush and after? Where were we from a budget, balanced budget perspective? Where were we from just, uh, you know, our our level of borrowing, our level of debt? Uh, Just question after question after question. Now, there's no doubt that Clinton made a lot of very serious mistakes. And I'm referring to mistakes in office, particularly mistakes in the realm of you know managing the economy and the appropriate level of regulation, uh, he failed as miserably as you possibly can fail. But he ironically failed in kind of the same way that Ronald Reagan failed, and um, George H. W. Bush did nothing to you know change the course on those mistakes. And George W. Bush was simply asleep at the switch, or or made things worse to where we ended up with a lot of the problems we've had here in this country in the last two or three years. You can blame presidents going all the way back, including the current sitting president in Obama. So, you know, the one question is, does it really matter who's president? Well, to a certain degree, yes. But to another degree, 
we've had the White House over the course of the last 16 to 20 years flip-flop from Republican to Democrat to Republican to Democrat. And as far as I can tell, we've made the same mistakes regardless which political party was in office. So, no, Chris's message that he gave to that group of, of Christians who had come together to worship and to pray for the church was, we are making a serious mistake. If we give too much power, too much authority, too much negative potentiality to any one politician, whether that person be the president of the United States or just somebody running for office. Now, I don't want to make that same mistake myself. I'd prefer not to be one more person who looks at what I consider to be the the serious foolishness or perhaps even a nefarious evil in the theology of Rick Santorum that, uh, you know, he's, again, he's replaced the God of the New Testament and um, in some cases openly defied the words of Jesus Christ in the interest of purporting a theology that is all about, it's all about being opposed to abortion and homosexuality and has very little to do with anything Jesus ever said. But I don't see Christians standing up to him or others over these things. Don't bring the polarization of politics, of partisan politics, into the family of God. Don't demonize anyone. Don't allow yourself to support attempts to divide races, genders, so forth and so on. Most of the Republican strategy, at least in some quarters, um, the, the camps of Rick Perry and Michelle Bachman and Rick Santorum, all about fear-mongering, trying to separate people, divide them one against each other, both inside the church and out. And of course, the reason I would direct a lot of my anger directly toward Rick Santorum is that he has actually had the temerity to declare that anyone who isn't part of his political worldview, not so much his theological worldview, but his political worldview, in, in his mind, isn't even part of the Christian church. At what point is the Christian Research Journal going to publish an article of comparable length to this one that was published in 2008, but instead publish it in 2012 and use it as the bully pulpit that it was intended to be by them to denounce the perhaps heretical views expressed by Rick Santorum, or at the very least, his misguided violation of every principle that that publication has set forth. We'll see. A show where Bill and Ted's excellent adventure is up against Forbidden Planet. And somebody just voted for Bill and Ted's excellent adventure. Welcome to Game Fights, the Ponzi scheme of podcasting. I'm David Shaw. With me as always is Mr. Mike Ortiz. So what are we fighting about this time, David? Best sci-fi movie of all time. Best token minority. Best animated TV series. Listen. Geek Fights is quickly becoming one of my favorite podcasts. Each week they have a specific topic to debate about uh, all the different nominees, and they set it up in tournament-style brackets, just as described. And, you know, it taps into a lot of things that I'm really all about. I I enjoy lists. I enjoy bracket-based competition, both in sports and, in this case, in other areas. And uh, I take seriously enough uh, my interest in this show that if you listen to one of the recent episodes called Best Historical Figure, well... You'll see what I mean.
I realize this has been a Christianity-focused episode, and that if you really look back over the course of the past three or four, I've really been kind of on a lot of a Christianity focus lately, either talking about my personal faith experiences or sharing at length from Scripture. Uh, This week, lots of different tidbits of scriptural quotations, and uh, last week, an an entire full-length poem. Instead of a focus on Christianity today, though, In this particular week, when I'm talking about the importance of having a broad and open mind, not being, uh, you know, married to the idea that America is somehow a Christian nation, not making the mistakes that were outlined in the Christian Research Journal four years ago, instead, talking about our country as being a country that is big enough for a variety of ideas, including ideas that don't have anything to do with Christianity or theism in general, our different drummer an influential figure, both for me and obviously in world history, Gautama, Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha. Gautama was born into a princely family about 563 BC and died around 483. He was the leader of a developing community of devoted followers. His father ruled over a small kingdom in what is now Nepal. Unlike some of the other key religious figures in the Indian subcontinent, Gautama was not the son of a priestly family, but was rather the son of more of a a warrior or governing family. And yet, he still had all of the trappings of wealth, uh, being in every case, in every sense of the word, upper caste. The story is told about him, legendary story, no doubt, that his father was so concerned about his son's philosophical interests that he made sure that he sheltered him from very much, if any, contact with the outside world. The number one thing he didn't want is for his son to abandon the family's uh, path and go in the path of the ascetics, people who had gone from uh, one extreme to the other, as opposed to being living in a life of luxury where every worldly desire was met, living in a life of of extreme um, self-deprivation and seeking um, enlightenment through the denial of human senses. This did not work, of course. Uh, legend has it that uh, Gautama at one point saw a very old man and not understanding uh, what an old man was, viewed the white-haired, wrinkled person as nothing but a creature, perhaps not even human. When a servant explained that the old man was just you know, suffering from old age and that his condition was natural and that um, all of us would one day grow old and die, it was the first talk of death that Gautama had ever experienced before. This would ultimately lead him to leave his father's home and go on a search for the truth. And that search for the truth, cutting all the way to the end of the story, led to his enlightenment. And his enlightenment led to the um, almost philosophical religion of Buddhism. Coming from an area where the prevailing religious beliefs were Hinduism and Jainism, um, Gautama was part of a culture that believed in reincarnation, believed in karma, in the consequences of your actions leading to a never-ending cycle of rebirth, uh, each one uh, in its own way, dealing with an either ever-increasing or ever-decreasing level of suffering, and ultimately death. This led um, to the four noble truths. Those are that one, all is suffering. Two, suffering is caused by desire. Three, to cut off desire is to be rid of suffering. And four, This is to be accomplished by following the noble eightfold path. That path is right views, right aspiration, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. This is not a uh, 
do-it-yourself, optimistic philosophy, but instead perhaps a very grim and straightforward view of human nature, at least human nature from what we might call an Eastern perspective. The best way I've heard the Eightfold Path described to me was uh, perhaps even by my father, called the Middle Path. In other words, avoiding the pointless extremes. And uh, that, that was the kind of the gist of the story where he left, left a life of luxury where he could have had anything he wanted and virtually did have anything he wanted to uh, spending some time in his seeking, being part of a clan of, of ascetics, um, living in a, uh, a period of extreme deprivation where he left his wife and child, but also you know lost a, a significant amount of weight, put his health at risk because um, that sort of uh, that sort of exercise of diet and meditation, you know, is extreme. And what Buddhism teaches above all is that the extreme is not the way to go, that you cannot um, deprive your way to enlightenment any more than you can indulge your way to enlightenment. Ancient text Shogatoma is describing enlightenment this way. I thus knew and thus perceived my mind was emancipated from the canker of sensual desire and from the canker of desire for existence and from the canker of ignorance. And in me emancipated arose the knowledge of my emancipation. I realized that destroyed is rebirth. The religious life has been led. Done is what was to be done. There is not for me beyond this world. Ignorance was dispelled. Knowledge arose. Darkness was dispelled light arose. And um, when I was at uh, university studying ancient religions, the point that was driven home by the professor for me here was the knowledge, the self-awareness of knowing that he had become emancipated, not questioning or hoping, or even on the other extreme, doubting, but being able to make the statement, in me emancipated, arose the knowledge of my emancipation. I mentioned that at one point when I had a conversation with a friend in high school where what I was supposed to be doing was engaging in, um, if nothing else, a distraction from either rumors that were being spread about her or the truth of, of you know, poor decisions that were being made that uh, could have had potential health risks, potential reproductive health risks, because the drugs that were circulating in the rumors about her were particularly dangerous in that one regard. I didn't have... I didn't find the words to have that conversation. And instead, we spoke about world literature. And among the pieces of world literature that we discussed, both of us being honors English students, was the book Siddhartha by Herman Hesse, which is a fictional reinterpolation of elements of the Buddha's story, uh, where uh, in the second chapter, an interesting thing happens where the fictional character Siddhartha is told about the actual figure of Gautama. And um, one of my favorite moments, actually, in, in, in all of Hesse's work. And so from this perspective, my family took what I think probably in, in their mind was the risk of saying, hey, is, is it okay if this guy is suddenly studying Buddhism? Because I was a serious student, uh, even in high school, perhaps a student of theology. And definitely by the time I got to college, at the university level, a student of religious studies, if not theology. I never for one moment felt that my personal Christian faith and my personal Christian experience was threatened in any way by Buddhism. But the ideas that Gautama expressed proved to be very interesting and enlightening in the sense, the lower E sense, of providing a window of understanding to what a lot of the religions 
of India and China and Japan are all about. It's a very different worldview, and we, we are, I think, too cavalier sometimes when we drop terms like East versus West out there. However, it is important to note that there are key distinctions between the beliefs of Christianity and the beliefs of Buddhism. Perhaps best for me, captured in this one quote, again quoting from ancient Buddhist scripture, Be lamps unto yourselves, be refugees to yourselves, take yourself to no external refuge, hold fast to the truth as a lamp. Hold fast as a refuge to the truth. Um, Savior is hardly an appropriate designation for one who told people to be their own lamps. Um, This is a quote from the textbook called The Religious World Communities of Faith and a chapter written by Richard C. Bush. Um, It's interesting to me, though, that 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 distinction is important in two ways. Because first of all, I think sometimes people who come without a, a faith background or a faith perspective, quick to criticize the concepts in Christianity of atonement and of Jesus's role as Savior. And that's a big distinction here between Christianity and Buddhism. But it's a mistake to put too much pressure on the idea that that means that evangelism is in any way wrong. Because to me, there's as much evangelism going on in Buddhism, even Buddhism of the, of the period not long after Gautama lived, um, the Jains, um, a religion that you know, we don't really think of today on the world religion stage. We probably view it in some ways as being synonymous or a sect of Hinduism. But truly, it was its own group contemporaneous to the Buddha. And they viewed, uh, they viewed the Buddha as an enticer, was their word for him, because of evidence that um, non-Buddhists were being attracted to Buddhism through his teaching. I think any time somebody speaks with passion, about spiritual matters, and with a conviction behind those matters, it is going to be a form of evangelism. Evangelism isn't just a Christian thing. It's a thing that I think is true for anybody who has a faith experience so powerful and so real that they feel compelled to share it. I want to leave us with a quote today from Aristotle. I would describe this quote as an answer to the question of whether or not it's okay, is it, quote, safe, unquote, to look seriously at other people's views, to take on the ideas of others long enough to understand them fully enough that conversation can take place, that the kind of dialogue that we recommend for people in the political process happen instead of the kind of things that in 2008 Christian authors were railing against because they were already seeing evidence that Christianity in the public square, in the political arena, was being done in a horrifically terrible way. No, here's the quote from Aristotle. It says this, It is the mark of an educated mind to be able to entertain a thought without accepting it. Sometimes we will entertain others' thoughts and find them persuasive. Sometimes we will entertain others' thoughts, find issues or questions, raise those questions, address those issues, and persuade the other person instead. And sometimes it's enough for two people with very different experiences to entertain one another's thoughts and leave unpersuaded in either way. This is not a contest where people engaging in philosophical conversation or an endeavor to find correct political solutions, often involving compromises, have to do battle where one wins and one loses. This isn't a geek fight where somebody ultimately is going to be crowned best or crowned champion. The political process is not designed in America to work that way. 
That is, in fact, a much more American idea than any notion we have of us being a Christian nation. The Violent Femmes in their song, Rejoice and Be Happy, quote Jesus directly from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 with the words, Rejoice and be happy when men revile you, just like our Savior taught us to do. Rejoice and be glad when for his name's sake they speak all manner of evil, and against you they hate. You are the salt of the earth. If you're not salty, what are you worth? Well, are we, in the current political climate, seeing anybody Christians in particular, out there in the public square, who are prepared to be happy when they face criticism. And I'm not talking about fair criticism versus unfair criticism. I'm talking about any criticism whatsoever. As an analogy, salt is supposed to bring out the flavor of what the, what the food really tastes like, not to overwhelm it, not to bury it, not to create uh, nothing but a soft a salty aftertaste and none of the taste of the original food whatsoever. When Jesus talks about us being the salt of the earth, he's talking about us being capable of engaging in conversations with other people without demonizing them or without exalting them to the status of being some, some sort of savior figure in and of themselves. When we hear the dialogue we're hearing today from certain people, particularly those in the political right about topics like abortion homosexuality, birth control, um, the role of religion in public life. Are we experiencing the saltiness described in the Sermon on the Mount? Are we experiencing something, well, something that you just wouldn't want anybody to do inside your kitchen? If you'd like to put some dialogue into this conversation yourself, the website has show notes enabled at inappropriateconversations.podbean.com and I can be reached at IC underscore Greg at hotmail.com Thanks for listening.